Millions of frontline workers keep our economy running and are provided with the latest technology to do their jobs. But digital adoption, especially by frontline workers, is really hard. This is Frontline Innovators. We explore how to overcome challenges and achieve success when we empower our essential workers. I'm Justin Lake. And I'm Gene Signorini. Together, we speak with experts who are leading the way and driving digital transformation to the front line. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful on a mission to help frontline workers learn and use the technology needed to succeed in their jobs. I'm your host, Justin Lake, and I'm super excited for today's episode. Today's guest has over 20 years combined experience in change management, communications, and public relations. He's a member of the Association of Change Management Professionals and is ProSci certified in organizational change management. He's currently a change manager at Lowe's. Please welcome to the show, Ken White. Hey, Ken. Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me. Very well, and I'm really excited to have you on the show today. And as we always do on the show, I want to start off and ask you what you feel is the biggest challenge facing the deskless workforce today. I believe, um, based on my experience, that that would be technology-driven change saturation hmm. for any number of reasons be it uh, to improve communications, uh, to improve sales, improve on-the-job safety, uh, to streamline how frontline workers do their jobs, technology-driven changes are coming out fast and furious. And this is some feedback that I have received uh, from those um, internal clients that I have. Uh, and we have to remember that Frontline workers have sort of a double whammy, if you will, in the area of change saturation. They not only have to embrace the technology-driven changes, but the regular corporate changes that, that come down the pike, whether that be um, adhering to some government regulations or organizational restructuring. So they've got two buckets that they have to deal with. Well... You're, uh, you're in the right place to talk about this because uh, I think a lot of the people that would be listening, and I certainly agree that um, you know, technology-driven change saturation is, is a big challenge for, for the men and women. And um, so you've already brought up a bunch of topics that I want to come back to and really explore a little bit further. But before we do that, uh, I'd like to get and I'd like our audience to get a little bit of better understanding of who you are and, and how you came uh, into the role that you have today. So take us back as, as far in your background as you feel comfortable uh, and tell us how you ended up where you're at today. Well, a long, long time ago in a faraway land uh, of Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I thought you was, were going to say in a galaxy far, far away. In a galaxy far, okay. far away. Um, in 2006, I um, became a member of a Tennessee Department of Human Services uh, statewide initiative uh, to bring all their workers online so that in all 90 counties they could work collaboratively, um, that uh, the public would only have to fill out forms once because all counties could share that information. Whereas before, it was a lot of manual work that they were on a mainframe system set up. It was just antiquated. And so I was made based on um, my communications experience, as well as pub public relations experience, uh, the 
communications and change readiness manager. So that uh, was my introduction to um, the change management um, basics outside of communications, because as we all know, communications is kind of like the backbone of, of change management. But it was kind of a lot of on-the-job training. Uh, from there, I had any number of contracts in uh, change management in industries that span from automotive to healthcare um, to, again, government services. And then I landed my first uh, full-time change management job at Duke Energy uh, in customer delivery. Customer delivery is the largest department at Duke Energy. And basically, those are the folks out in the field, in, in the bucket trucks that you see, all yeah. those folks reading meters, that's customer delivery, uh, taking care of issues, setting up new lines, setting up new meters. I worked there for a couple of years, and I think we'll touch upon it later on. Um, but uh, in the last one and a half years, about two years, uh, I was put on a very exciting project called Lighthouse which was Duke Energy's Digital Transformation Initiative. Um, and then I was offered my current position at Lowe's uh, in Lowe's Technology. So I am the change manager for Lowe's Technology for both the United States and India. And that's the long and short of it. That's fantastic. So what, what was it about change management that, that drew your interest in that direction? Change management, um, uh, in between all those contracts and change management, because of my writing skills um, and analysis skills, I um, did some technical writing contracts, some uh, business uh, analyst uh, contracts and full-time employment. And um, I enjoyed that work, but I began thinking of what really what what is really at the heart of what I want to do when I grow up and change management seemed to fit the bill of being able to tie in my communication skills my public relations skills my writing skills um, working with uh, influencers and leadership to get initiatives over the line or sway others to help us um, get initiatives over the line. So change management brought together many of the tenants of my background in one nice job title. Yeah. I, I, you've got a degree in communications. So that's been kind of an underlying theme of, of everything that you've been doing in your career. So it, it, it kind of makes sense when you sought that degree, it, did you imagine ending up in a role like this or did you have something different in mind? I had something different in mind, actually, but it plays into what I'm doing today. I um, had in mind um, uh, working in television and film. After college with my degree, I wound up working in broadcast radio and had a boutique um, adver television advertising company. And so what are the similar what is the the ties to change management there well in change management we're influencing we're selling uh, we're making people feel positive about what we're rolling out to them um we have to listen 
uh, as we're writing the scripts, listen to what works, what doesn't work. And so, you know, it that, that work ties into what I'm doing today, but coming out of the gate, I had uh, those ambitions to work in tele television and film. Um, I, the biggest job I had in film was I was an assistant director on an independent feature film that was shot in the Washington DC area. So I really didn't go down that road too far. Um, so um, then when I moved from Washington DC, having uh, done the broadcast radio and television advertising, when I moved to Nashville, I sought to do um, the same type of work, but I found out that Nashville was a big, small town. And if you didn't grow up there or have family there, it's very hard to um, break into the system. And that's where all those contracts started coming in. I just thought, well, because I started getting contact, did by recruiters um, for, for contracts. And so that's how that all, all got started. And then again, as I said earlier, it all parlayed into what I'm doing today. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, that's uh, an exciting background. I appreciate you uh, you sharing with that to give us some uh, context there. So tell us a little bit. You mentioned um, Project Lighthouse um, at Duke specifically. I'd love to hear of a little bit more uh, about that project because I, I think your story about Project Lighthouse will probably cover a couple of the topics that we, we would normally talk about. So why don't you just start off telling a little story about what happened with, the, with that project? Well, it was really funny how I, I, I began that project. I'll, I'll tell you that funny story before I tell you about Lighthouse. But um, back to this change, saturation, and things moving so fast, um, I know it's not just unique to Duke Energy, to Lowe's. Uh, it, it's almost every company is becoming a digital company, mm -hmm. as many you know and many of your listeners know, I'm sure. So I was wrapping up a, another initiative at Duke Energy and tying a nice bow on it and got a phone and said, well, we're putting you on a project called Lighthouse. And, um, you know, you know, we need you to jump in like real quick. And I, and I said, well, what is real quick? And it's like, well, in 10 minutes, they're launching. <laughs> <laughs> 10 minutes. <laughs> you need to go across the street, go to XYZ board, you know, meeting room and uh, take part in the launch. <laughs> and so, no, it's not an option. I know it was not an option. So I picked up my pen and my writing pad and my laptop and sat in on the launch of Lighthouse. Basically, Lighthouse um, was Duke Energy, is Duke Energy's um, flagship initiative to digitally, digitally transform itself. Um, and it was a project where they gutted out an old warehouse here in Charlotte. And they put a lot of neon inside, a lot of polished wood floors. Think Silicon Valley, right? Yeah. Then they took the best and the brightest, not saying that I was one of those, but somehow I fell into it. Uh, the best and the brightest from the development teams across Duke Energy to represent every um, department from HR to legal to supply chain to customer delivery. And they put these teams under one roof, set them up to work in agile methodologies to develop products and the products that they built. Here's an interesting aspect. The way that products moved down the road was that every eight weeks, kind of like Shark Tank, an agile team had to come before a board 
and pitch what they wanted to do with this product for the next eight weeks. It got a thumbs up or a thumbs down, right? So there's these constant pitches, which made for a very dynamic, um, you know, environment, but this is called metered funding. If you got to a point where they said, okay, you know, product's good. We don't want to go any further. We, we hear you, but let's, you know, let's call this done. Um, then it didn't go any further. So every eight weeks you had to pitch your ideas uh, to the board uh, to get that funding to, to go for the next eight weeks. So we have our agile teams from every department under one group, best and the brightest, um, working collaboratively, even also under that roof were communities of practice. I was in, involved in a, a lighthouse change management community of practice. So a lot of um, innovation going on, a lot of collaboration going along, a lot of knowledge transfer and share going on. It, it was quite dynamic. And during my time there, I either worked on or was around four or five products that we developed customer delivery. That's fantastic. So when you think about the, the challenge, I mean, I know this is going back, the Project Lighthouse story, you know, dates back a few years, or at least your involvement of it. But when you think about your experiences then and, and how you started off the conversation about the, the amount of technology-driven change saturation, what are some of the best practices you can share with us that, that you learned from that experience about being in the middle of such a major transformational initiative and yet still having to deal with the, the human element of adoption of that change? Well, some of the best practices I would say would be never stop listening to your customer or, or the end user mm -hmm. because you're there to develop products that will make their life easier and create business value, right? Some of the other best practices I would say is, which was in force at Lighthouse, is a diehard commitment to no idea is a bad idea. So there was a great environment of freedom uh, to speak up with your thoughts uh, as we work through this current eight weeks or the next eight weeks, what we want this product to be. Um, I don't know if it actually falls into the realm of best practices, but uh, I would definitely say some of those things that make for, made for our, our good experiences that we had our senior leadership on board. They were all in alignment with what we were doing. Um, and they dedicated the resources necessary to get the job done. Uh, so those were two main tenants, you know, leadership buy-in, dedicated resources. Uh, those were two main tenants that made the whole thing successful. Yeah. How, what did you, or, or what was it about the culture that allowed to have such great leadership buy-in? It, it sounds like that was a, a pretty important element as you were telling that story. Is there anything in particular that I you think can that um, the leadership was a bunch of just smart folks and they could see down the road and they knew that every company needs to leverage digital technology to succeed in the future. So yeah. their starting place was a place of knowing clearly what the future 
had in hand as far as growth and success. Yeah. No, I think that's encouraging. And I think a lot of customers or companies, I should say, are, are transitioning over to really thinking of themselves or rethinking of themselves as a digital organization, even though that may not be, you know, their primary function. They're not Google and, you know, they're not Apple, but, um, you know, many companies now have to be really digital first, including utility companies, right? So that makes a lot of sense that the part that I'm encouraged by is to hear in, in the story that you're sharing, the, the emphasis of and support for change management to have a team and to be as thoughtful and deliberate about how you were going to bring this innovation into the organization. That part's pretty impressive. Right. It was very impressive and rewarding for me. Um, layered onto the change management aspect was um, a totally new concept to me, which I'm so glad I was a part of, was design thinking. And so I needed to, uh, you know, back to your best practices, I would definitely say finding a way to uh, work as a change manager in a constructive way on a development team um, with uh, design thinking leads is very important because some of the tenets of design thinking, empathy maps, for instance, um, cross over into standard change management practices. So I know personally, I had to sit down with the design thinking lead on these projects and say, okay, your empathy map, really, I get a lot of that in my stakeholder impact analysis. So as not to wear our development team down with double work, how do we combine what you do, what I do, et cetera, et cetera. So that plays into the uh, collaboration, um, uh, again, of the whole Lighthouse Initiative, just the, the, the pace and the goals and the mission uh, and the people and the profile of the people on the teams uh, just uh, needed collaboration to, to be a success. You mentioned empathy maps, and that's a concept I don't think uh, a lot of people are aware of. Could you, could you describe a little bit more about empathy maps and, and their purpose and, and how you used them in that scenario? Sure, I can. Empathy, empathy maps are um, a nice way of um, combining both the, the technical aspect of a worker and their job role and, and, and their personal side. So basically, an em empathy map, we, we take your typical job role, say, line technician, right? And we divide it up into four categories. And as a development team, we talk about this line, the typical line technician. And we talk about what the line tech is thinking, what they're actually doing on their job on a daily basis, what they're feeling about what they're doing, and what they're saying about what they do and the organization. So what is that thinking, feeling, saying, and doing? And really, it's just a laundry list of, you know, linemen. Here's what they're saying about their job and how this is how it ties into the product that we're developing. Here are the pain points that we are going to remove based on what they're thinking, saying, feeling, and doing. So that's, in, in a nutshell, empathy mapping. Thing, it, mapping it. It's just um, a deeper dive into the persona of, of the, the frontline worker. I love it. And, and how does that then, so actually I should go back one step. How are you collecting that 
data. Is that something that the, the change team is, is coming into a room and, and populating that on their own, or are you sitting down with a, a focus group of users? Talk, talk to me a little bit about how that's handled. Well, that's a good question and, and all of the above. We began our process by sitting down as a team in a room and those people around the table were very familiar with the, the workers that we were developing products for. And we would, would create a beta version of an empathy map, if you will, right? Then um, we would go out into the field in discovery meetings and talk directly with workers to see if what we thought they were saying, you know, I can't tell you the number of things I learned by sitting around a table 15 minutes before a scheduled meeting was to occur having coffee with two or three workers to validate what they're thinking. And, and, say, and did it, and did it validate what you had in your map or did Many it? times it did, because again, our starting point uh, back to the getting the best and the brightest to work on these teams under one roof. Um, many of the folks on the development teams had years of experience at Duke and they had a pretty, pretty good idea. But between the two, we started out with our beta version, if you will, a baseline. And then we went out to validate whether, you know, what we were, what we thought about um, the workers was true. And then we would come back and revise not only the empathy maps, but we would do some revision of our initial thoughts around um, the product features. Um, because you definitely don't want to develop something that people don't want. Yeah. So did the empathy maps only feed into the design and the development of the technology, or did you take that further into training and change communication and things like oh, that? Oh, most well? definitely. Most definitely. We use that uh, for, to develop our communications, um, which, you know, basically the backbone of the communications, as you know, is beginning with awareness, explaining the why, what we're doing. Uh, and again, to the training, uh, it definitely a, an interesting part about the training is that while we were in the field um, on these discovery meetings, we identified key influencers that would carry our messages to the boots on the ground folks, um, as well as that would help us with our training initiatives. So those discovery meetings had several different purposes, but yes, we use that information in all of the, the, the tenants of change management to include sponsor engagement. We got, yeah. to, we got to meet the leaders in leadership in the field, uh, listen to them, um, figure out um, you know, how we would work with them based on what we were hearing from the workers, how we would ask them to be active and visible, um, how to communicate our messages, um, based on what we've heard and what we need people to know. So yeah, every aspect of the change management uh, life cycle, we use that information. My, my favorite part of, of what you just described, the empathy maps or the, the, the ones that are maybe a little bit more abstract, which is the, what does he or she think and what does he or she feel? I think that's something that I've become increasingly sensitive to as we think about how to build and support and train for technology solutions with the front lines is um, 
they, I've been fortunate to be out in the field and had some feedback and a story that I'm sure my team is tired of me telling them is, is one time that I was out with a, a delivery driver and he was actually using words like stressed and anxiety and frustrated in telling me about how he felt about the tech transformation that was coming down the pipe. And I was so uh, thankful of how self-aware he was and how uh, comfortable he was sharing his feelings about it. And I just, I had a moment that day that I'll never forget where I realized, you know, there have probably been hundreds of other frontline workers that I've come into contact with that maybe just didn't explain themselves as clearly as that guy did that day. But I bet many of them were feeling the same way. And until we, you know, really consider the emotional side of that, it's not just about, you know, the, the tools that they're using and the equipment that they're operating and stuff like that, but it is also about how they feel about those changes. So I, I love that you have a framework for how to map that out and make sure that it's being, you know, considered for all phases of your, your transformation. Right. And I can tell you that um, going out in the field in the discovery meetings, how much goodwill that created yeah. that we would care because um, back to the deskless frontline workers, often they feel voiceless and um, often they, um, are not even aware of what corporate's going on or that they corporate would take the time to come out to talk to them. So back to that, the discovery meetings of the field played into the change management. We built trust by um, going out to the field as well, which yeah. is very important. Yes, I think that's something that's really overlooked a lot of times is the, the relationship. Uh, several of our guests have talked about this in, in a variety of different terms, but what it boils down to is um, the relationship value that comes from getting out in the field, asking questions, showing that you actually care about their input. You know, you mentioned earlier in our conversation today about, you know, there's, there's uh, no idea is a bad idea and having the freedom to speak up and, and that ought to extend all the way out to, you know, the men and women on the front line so that they can be contributors and actually bring them in to be a part of, of the process as early as is, as is practical in your That's project. Right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So let's shift a little bit. I, I know you're um, in, in retail now, and um, you know this, uh, all of these segments have been affected by the pandemic over you know, the last, we're coming up on two years now, which is crazy. Um, how do you think frontline workers have been affected by um, the, the pandemic and, and being a part of the, the global economy while all of this has been kind of hitting the fan? Well, um, I've touched upon it before, how they've been affected by the pandemic is every company, I believe, is thinking, how do we get our, done, uh, our jobs done using technology, you know? It gets back to that technology-driven chain saturation. Yeah, how you opened the conversation. Yeah, yeah. How, you know, um, because of the pandemic, um, business processes are changing. I know at Lowe's, um, we're having to when we introduce curbside service and lockers, and um, and being able to check out in aisle 26 with an associate and their handheld device um, that they're having to, because of the pandemic, adopt all these new technologies that are keeping the customers happy, uh, driving sales. So again, it's what I opened up with. 
I would also say that, you know, they're on a personal, personal note that they're having to think about their own personal safety, mm-hmm. you know, and keeping their families safe. And um, we, I know that we have, have um, you know, you know, promoted following guidelines that we put out there. And then people have their own personal uh, list of, of tactics that they use. Uh, but yeah, I would say also uh, because of the pandemic, a new set of customer service skills has had to be learned, mm-hmm. you know, because customers are, have gotten used to fast, quick, easy, in large part because of technology. And if something goes wrong with their technology and they need to come into the store or, or whatever, they, the associate needs to try as hard as possible to mirror, to give them that fast, easy, um, you know, shopping experience. So they've had to, to learn new skills. So there's, there's many different ways that they, you know, the, the, because of COVID that COVID has uh, introduced, they've also had to learn um, how to be agile (laughs) and change direction, you know, and to troubleshoot if, um, something is not going right because many plans are being developed and implemented in what normally would take six months to a year within two or three weeks. You know, so when it's rolled out and it's something goes wrong and our you know associates, our frontline workers need to stay positive and they need to check and adjust. So that that's a new skill set for, for many of our workers. Yeah, it's, and it's interesting as you describe it as a new skill set. I was thinking about the job descriptions of those roles. Probably, at least historically, didn't include a lot of the things that you just described. Right? It, it probably never said technical troubleshooting <laughs> as part of your job requirement. But the reality is, over the last year and a half, that's become you know a, a necessary part of their role. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And and I and I did touch upon you know some of our we have different business processes based on different protocols that we, we have to follow. So it's just a whole new world that, um, that has been introduced by the pandemic. I think your segment of retail was, you know, particularly impacted in that, you know, I, I know all aspects of retail have been impacted. So if there are any other retailers out there, I'm not saying that you had it easier. Um, but, you know, when you look at the home improvement retail segment, you know, all of us that were working from home, we're out there, you know, repairing our homes and, and, you know, going into overdrive on home improvement projects. So your business was actually up at the same time, you know, you were dealt, uh, you know, the same challenge that a lot of other industries had to face, which is all the new processes and everything that you're talking about. And, and I love that you opened the conversation with the, the change saturation, because I, I do think everybody had to change to adapt to the new processes, but at the same time, companies like yours were using technology as part of that process change, right? So it was just a, a whirlwind of things happening all at the same time. And I think a, a lot of that is still underway today. Yeah, <clears throat> yes, it is. And um, it's requiring you know new commitment from all workers. Um, it's requiring um, uh, more clear, concise, relevant communications um, to explain the what, the why, and the how. Um, uh, I know that our learning and development department is busy creating learning modules 
for this, that, and the other. Um, it's just um, work on steroids for the yeah. past two years. Well, that actually brings me to another question, and, and maybe you were starting to go down this path and in, in referring to your colleagues in, on the L&D side of the house, but are, are, are there any tools that you're using, uh, maybe new tools that you're using now to facilitate change and learning and communication inside the organization? So not the end technology that you're trying to implement, but other tools that you're using to help with the implementation of that? You mean the products that we develop or just um, developing your skill set in technology in general? Yeah. So what tools are you using to communicate? Are you using any different tools for training than you were using in the past? Um, you know, any of those things that are enabling technologies versus the actual enterprise uh, tool itself? Well, to tell you the truth, I, I don't know that I can give you a robust answer on that because our learning and development department is so great that they they just take care of it from A to Z. That's awesome. They have an intake session with us and they um, come back to us and with with the training modules, uh, I, I, I can't really tell you what software they use yeah, yeah. or trying anything differently. I can't tell you um, that we have uh, at Duke Energy, we developed uh, back to mobile technology. We did develop you know, micro learning opportunities uh, that folks could do in the field on their phones. And so that was definitely something that we tried at Duke. Um, and I'm pretty sure that we do it at Lowe's as well. Yeah. But really, I, they are, uh, I am their customer, L&D, you know, awesome. and they're, they're fantastic. So, um, yeah, can't really go any further as far as any okay. tools that L&D uses. Okay. I know to improve skills, we use, uh, we have a very robust um, uh, array of modules offered by Pluralsight. I don't know if you've ever heard of Pluralsight, but, but that gets to just developing your skills as a software engineer, et cetera, right. you right. know, as a business analyst, project manager, et cetera. Okay. No, that's really good. And I, I like to keep, you know, the, the show mostly on the positive side. Um, but I do think it's helpful that we learn from maybe some things that didn't go as well as we had hoped. And I'm curious if you can think of any examples where maybe you tried to implement something from a, a change leadership standpoint that maybe, maybe it didn't go badly, but it just didn't go exactly the way that you thought. Are there any experiences that come to mind that, that you can share with us? Well, one comes to mind pretty immediately, and that was at Duke Energy. And we were, I think it was, I have a note here. I think it was um, either on a new damage assessment app, um, I believe, but it was on an app to help our line technician. Uh, either um, it could have been our, the smart meter project where we, you know, the, the line worker could just scan the meter okay. and it would create a ticket, enter all the data, and it solved a big problem of fat fingering manually the information from a meter. So it was either the damage assessment tool or the, or the smart meter project where we got way, way down the road until we found out that the third party system ss9 
would not support what we were doing. Oh, good grief. Which entered into several months of trying to figure out workarounds. So uh, the takeaway here is that when you're going into developing a product, you really need to ensure that all of your backend systems and especially your third party systems will support what you're developing. And whatever initiative that was, it, it was put on the shelf after you know several, several months. But this is the beauty about um, that environment, uh, the beauty about Duke Energy leadership uh, and Lighthouse in general is that the motto fail and fail fast was not only uh, spoken, but it was modeled. Yeah. And so a lot of people could have gotten upset over that. Um, but to leadership's credit, to the product development team's um, uh, credit, uh, we woke up, pulled up our big boy pants, our big girl pants, and got busy on the next project the next day. Yeah. I love that. I love the spirit of the idea of, of failing fast. I'm, I know it's mostly semantics, but I, I hate the term itself because I, I feel like, uh, you know, there's such a negative connotation around failing right. and rather than it's discovery, thinking, really, it, right. It's a discovery and learning process. Right. Mm -hmm. So if, if we make a mistake and we don't learn from it, yes, that's a failure. Uh, if, if we make a mistake and learn and adapt and iterate on that, then I don't, think failure has, you know, uh, that word doesn't have a place in, in the spirit of what we're trying to do there. Right. But I get the gist of that. Uh, and I, I absolutely love that approach. And, you know, I think one of the things that a lot of our guests have talked about in the show is about when there has been a project in the past that didn't go as successfully as everybody thought that it would, that it creates a bit of, uh, you know, kind of mental scar tissue for the the upcoming projects right and i'm wondering if if you faced any of that in in the scenario that you were describing where because you'd had a failed experiment or a failed project in the past when you tried to go implement your next uh change was there any you know pushback from the the affected people that said oh well last time you guys came out here to roll out technology you know it never made it all the way so we spent all this time and energy and it never happened did you ever get any pushback after that well, I've experienced those scenarios often throughout my career, Yeah, which is why one of the first um, activities as a change manager I do is to do a change characteristics assessment. In other words, what is the change? How many people does it affect? Uh, is it complex or easy? And then an organizational attributes assessment in which we ask, um, how much change is going on currently? Has any past changes failed? You know, was leadership behind the change? Are they change management savvy? And so as part of that exercise, uh, we discover where um, a change was attempted and it did not go well. And that arms us to um, drop that into our risk mitigation plan and began as a team developing plans to address that. Um, that is, so at the heart of that, when something has not gone well, that is where it's more important than ever to 
recruit a change agent network yep. comprised of key influencers, uh, folks that people trust because we're dealing with trust factor in large part in those situations. So we got we have to identify the trust factors. Then we need our senior leadership to come out and come out strong. First of all, um, actually, I'm on a project right now at Lowe's where I strongly suggested that um, it's not that previous attempts at what we're currently doing went bad. It's just that we've done it and there were multiple flavors. So that's another scenario where there's been multiple flavors of this flavor. Um, And so I strongly suggested we have to acknowledge that we know that we've rolled similar things out. Uh, So being transparent, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. That's my favorite part of what you just said it is the transparency, right? Acknowledging to them that, hey, it's not like we're coming out here with a slightly different flavor and we're naive to the fact that this is only slightly different than what you've seen before, right? We get it. We know it. Here are the reasons why. And to go all the way back. Um, but, you know, you've spoken about this several times just in this brief chat that we've had today, which is about trust and the relationship. And I think that transparency only puts you in a position to have, you know, greater trust and and an improved relationship. So that's a a fantastic way to talk that through. Tell me, um, what is something that a contribution of yours in any of of the roles that you've had um, that you're most proud of? Contribution of mine that I'm most proud of. Got to give me one quick second here. Take your time. I guess it would be um, the Lighthouse Initiative and the um, preparing and training I gave um, the team I was assigned to in change management. Um, And in essence, the goal was to make everyone change agents. And why I'm most proud of that is because Lighthouse was Um, a very high profile initiative, uh, received national press. um, And we were looked at uh, in the industry as well as within other industry sectors as a model. Um, So the stakes were high. And at the end of the day, I had not only those that um, were my clients and those that were my supervisors on the project, but my coworkers uh, themselves tell me that um, repeatedly that they could not have um, developed the products that they did or went about the process um, uh, and achieved the same results without uh, the coaching and mentoring and guidance that I gave them. And again, these are people coming from Uh, from all uh, sectors of the enterprise, you know, I I told you I had a 10 minute warning, right? Yeah. Yeah. So there, I don't know, you know, we we were really all put together quickly. Uh, We were told to get off the ground quickly. In other words, that eight week cycle, those started like immediately. Um, so being able to not get in their way, weave myself in and out of the work that they were doing, um, doing this, you know, just in chunks of learning of uh, how they needed to think about the people side of change, not just the technology side without uh, getting on their nerves, 
uh, I had to learn their language of an agile team. Um, you know, don't dare put together a PowerPoint presentation if it can't go on a post-it note and stick it on a whiteboard. We don't want to hear what you have to say. So yeah. I had to learn their language. It was like coming into a new tribe, <laughs> if you will. Yeah. Um, so I guess I'm most proud of that because customer delivery at the end of the day was recognized out of all of the teams. They were recognized repeatedly as, um, you know, a, a group that excelled and exceeded expectations and were publicly acknowledged for that. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. That's a lot to be proud of. As you're telling the story, it, it was kind of making me think of like a scene in Apollo 13, you know, pull, pulling everybody together as, as quickly as you can. Exactly. So, solve a bunch of high exactly. pressure problems as fast as you can. And, um, you know, in that case, it was life or death. But in, in your case, uh, you know, it's, it's just a, a pretty big transformation that a whole team of people were pulled together to solve. And uh, that's, that's awesome. an excellent analogy. It, it yeah. really is. That's how it was. A lot of energy, a lot at stake. Yeah, that's a great story. So thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, I know uh, it, the time always flies when we're having these conversations and, and we are coming towards the end. But before we uh, totally wrap up, I'd love to get your take on what your your favorite and least favorite uh, aspects of, of working with technology. I guess my favorite uh, aspect of working with technology is that uh, um, uh, I have a solid understanding that technology is the engine that drives businesses. Mm -hmm. And I've always liked being where the action is at and technology, the development of new technologies um, is at the heart and soul uh, of most companies. And if it's not, it's rapidly becoming. Yeah. So um, what I don't, I don't know if, uh, if it's initially, I don't like about technology. But as a change manager, um, I feel that it's Groundhog Day. Uh, often in my ed needing to educate or reinforce and remind um, technologists and, that there is a people side to what they're doing. Um, there is um, a big emphasis, a lot of producing fast and uh, getting speed to market. And, and all those other buzzwords. Um, but there are individuals we need to take on this journey with us. And so I, I guess, um, again, it's not that I don't like it. It's a part of the job. And I do enjoy um, the mentoring and coaching aspect. But it would be nice if folks arrived, let's call it, uh, arrived at the table the way that my Duke Energy team ended up after months and months of working together and being educated in the people's side of change. But that's just not reality. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, um, man, you just summarized the, the intent of frontline innovators and really us just raising the awareness of the, the human element of digital transformation initiatives and making sure that we're all thinking about that. And we've had a few guests that have talked about the communication and acting as a conduit, not toward the frontline workers out, but actually toward the internal teams to help give the dev team, for example, and other folks in operations like perspective around a day in the life of the frontline workers, since the change folks seem to kind of sit in the middle as the liaison between those organizations to help the dev team understand 
yes, I know agile is wonderful. I know two week sprints make the dev team super efficient, but two week sprints are killing the frontline workers because we're changing things, you know, in, in their day every day. And it's, it's painful and it's too much change for them to absorb. Right. So uh, having that, you know, bi-directional communication is, uh, is really paramount to being successful in digital transformation. And that's really what the show is all about. So you did a great job of summarizing that. And I appreciate your, uh, your insight on that. Great. Yeah, it's good stuff. Well, Ken, we need to, uh, to wrap it up. Uh, we've already gone through uh, past our time here and uh, have really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, I hope our guests have uh, enjoyed the conversation as, as much as I have. Uh, if you have, please share and rate the podcast. Five-star ratings help ensure that it gets promoted to other professionals like you that are innovating on the front lines. Remember, the podcast is sponsored by Skillful, the digital adoption platform for deskless and frontline workers. Visit the website at skillful.com, and that's S-K-Y-L-L-F-U-L.com. And we're always looking for new guests. So if you or someone you know is out there innovating on the front lines, we'd love to hear about it. Please reach out to me on LinkedIn and either share your story or introduce uh, your colleague who may have a great story to share on the podcast, and we'd love to meet them. And we'll see you on the, the next episode. Ken, thanks again for your time today. Thank you.